Hello, and welcome to Manifold, where we look at today's scientific issues from varying points of view. I'm your host, Corey Washington. My co-host, Steve Shu is a little bit away across the desk because he is infectious. I'm a little under the weather. I'm going to be probably a little bit quiet during this episode, but I will serve as the audience ombudsman. Our guest today is Joe Cesario. Joe, welcome to Manifold. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, sure. I'm Associate Professor of Psychology here at MSU. Uh, basic research uh, interests are automatic behaviors, automatic cognition, uh, fast decisions under uncertainty, how they go right, how they go wrong, uh, where systematic bias might play into or might not play into those kinds of decisions. Today, we're going to talk to Joe about police decision-making and racial bias in deadly force decisions. Joe's the author of a recent paper on the topic called, Is There Evidence of Racial Disparity in Police Use of Deadly Force? That I expect, as it becomes more well-known, will spark some controversy. Uh, Joe, though your office is only about a quarter mile away, I have to say I only heard about your paper because a friend of mine from North Carolina texted me the link. <laughs> and uh, I was really uh, interested in, uh, in your findings. Uh, we'll put a link to the paper up on the um, episode's website. And we'll talk about a few of your other papers uh, soon, uh, unpublished, that will be up when they're coming out. Sure. Uh, I should add that you're also a critic of your field, <laughs> which I assume makes life a little uncomfortable at conferences. Yeah, sometimes, yeah. <laughs> uh, you're a critic of the reliability of the results, often, and how they're applied outside. Um, is this a concern of a—you're an editor of a journal, too. And is this one of the topics you raise in the journal you edit? Uh, the journal that I edit, which is uh, Comprehensive Results in Social Psychology, is the first pre-registration-only journal in the field. Uh, and so that's focused more on publication practices and publication write-up rather than questions about uh, applicability or external validity. Those come up, but principally what we're um, concerned with is the publication end of things and how that's impacted uh, the, the problems that we've had in social psychology. Joe, I, I hate to interrupt, but on behalf of the audience, uh, perhaps you could define what pre-registration is for experimental psychology. Absolutely. So uh, for our journal, we're actually a peer review pre-registration journal. So it's even slightly more complicated uh, than just explaining uh, pre-registration. But basically what happens is in standard publication practices in, in many areas of science, particularly in social sciences, uh, you do some research, you write it up, you, you find your results and you submit that final write-up to a journal, it gets reviewed by peers in the field, and then maybe gets published or maybe gets rejected or, or whatever. Um, in our, uh, uh, in peer review pre-registration, what happens is that you submit uh, the proposal for what you are going to do, okay? And so it looks just like a regular research, research re report would look like, except there are no results, okay? Instead, you're saying, here's what I'm going to do. Here are the number of subjects I'm going to collect. Here are the analyses that I'm going to do, and then we'll see what happens when I do that. That proposal then goes out for peer review. Okay? Right. And so... And for our audience's mm -hmm. sake, the, the what this design is meant to combat is a kind of hacking of results in which you actually are testing a whole bunch of things. Maybe there are 10 different things that are kind of going on in the topic that you're exploring. And you wait until you get one of those 10 things to reach a p-value or statistical significance, which looks good. And then you submit just that result 
uh, out of the 10 possible things maybe that you are measuring as part of your procedure. Um, and then, of course, uh, that sort of cherry picking, right? It looks yeah. like it's statistically significant, but the uh, reviewer doesn't really know what else you are up to during the experiment. Um, and sort of this, this pre-registration of the design helps prevent that kind of p-hacking or st- statistical hacking. Yeah, those, those what people call researcher degrees of freedom, right? Um, that's one element of it. But there are a couple others also. One is the publication bias in science in terms of publishing only positive results, mm-hmm. right? And so this prevents that from happening because reviewers have to evaluate the quality of the work prior to the results being known. Right. So that's I, one That's one thing. The other thing, I, I try to at least, there's sometimes I try to be optimistic, even though I'm, I'm, I am critical of our field and, and often pessimistic. One, try to be optimistic about it or frame it positively. The other thing that it does I think is produce better research. So you're getting feedback from other experts in the field before you do the study, right? Which is exactly when you want that kind of evaluation and that kind of information. So, so I think actually the, the quality of what comes out of that and, and, uh, is, is much higher and the dynamic between the author and the reviewer turns out to be, when you do it that way, really constructive and positive and, and people have actually a really good experience doing that. There isn't a general basic statistical principle, and that is that you accept a result as significant and perhaps publishable if the odds of it occurring, um, given the null hypothesis, the hypothesis nothing interesting is going on, is roughly 1 in 20. And if you run enough tests of different sorts on different hypotheses, every 1 in 20 times you're going to get a significant result. And if you just do that consistently, you can publish papers on almost any topic. You, by you can have whole careers. Yeah, exactly. Even, <laughs> even if the null is always true. Even though it's always true, right? exactly. You can still publish a bunch of papers. Um, and that's what this is designed to prevent. So let's talk about disparities in police shooting. The issue of police shooting of black men burst onto the national stage with the shooting of Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri in 2014. Brown's death led to months of protests and was a catalyst for the creation of the Black Lives Matters movement. Let Colin Kaepernick, one of my favorite NFL players, and Eric Reed to begin kneeling in protest during the national anthem at NFL games, and Donald Trump to attack him and other NFL players. Uh, with consequences, they're still reverberating throughout society. A basic assumption behind the protests and the BLM movement are that there are racial disparities in police shootings and other uses of force, but these views are not universally accepted. So in your paper, a uh, recent paper, you examined data on fatal police shootings at the national level. What did you find regarding the role of race in shooting of black and white people in the U.S. during those years? Sure. So... Um uh, yeah, the basic question is whether there exists evidence that police officers are racially biased in their decision to shoot. And, and by that, you know, the, the sort of classic quote of, you know, do officers have one trigger fring- finger for whites and one trigger finger for blacks is really the, the, the meat of the issue here that we're trying to get at. Um, the debate concerns how exactly you measure that and, and how you answer that question. So the, the standard way of doing that is to compare the proportion uh, for which some group is shot relative to their proportion in the overall population, right? So uh, black citizens represent about 13% uh, of the citizens in America, but there are roughly 35% of those shot by the police, okay? So they're overrepresented given their population proportions. You do that, you compare it to a different race, and you can compute some odds ratios, and you find, for instance, that black citizens are two and a half times more likely to be shot than white citizens, given the proportion of blacks and whites in the U.S. Okay. Um, 
our argument, and we're not the first to make this argument, although I think we have some unique takes on the data, uh, but our argument is that the population proportion is actually the wrong comparison standard or the, or the wrong benchmark, which you would call the wrong benchmark. Okay? Um, and in fact, I, I would argue that the population proportion is the wrong benchmark in virtually every study of group outcomes that you're interested in. Okay, so women in STEM, uh, any kind of racial or ethnic group outcomes in income and in health, whatever it might be, comparing to a group's population level is almost always not going to tell you anything about bias in the decision-making process. Um, for the police shooting, the argument here is that what you really want to know is whether black or white citizens are more likely to be shot given their exposure to the police, okay? That that's actually the correct benchmark rather than a group's population proportion. When you do that, which is what we did by indexing exposure through a range of different kinds of uh, uh, crime statistics, we find no evidence of anti-black uh, bias in police shootings at all. So s step us through this argument. Um, you think that proportion of population is the wrong metric to use when trying to calibrate whether there's a bias in police shootings. So for example, you think the 13%, the fact that blacks make up 13% of the population is not the relevant number. So tell me exactly why you think exposure to the police is the actual benchmark and what kind of data did you use to get it? Sure. So, so for the first question, uh, the reason why is that comparing it to the population, preparing, comparing a rate to the population proportion basically carries with it one of two assumptions. Okay, One of two things has to be true uh, for that to be a meaningful measure. Either in the case of police shootings, police have to be randomly shooting people on the streets. Okay, If they were just simply randomly firing their guns, you would expect people to get shot at roughly the rate um, at, at which they exist in the, in the population. We know that that's not true. Okay, um, So then the question is, if police are more likely to use force, deadly force, in some situations rather than other situations, it has to be the case that different racial groups are represented in those situations even to their population if you're going to use the population um, proportion as a metric. Okay, if not, uh, then the population proportion becomes irrelevant. So, so an example would be uh, if you just remove it from the, from the policing uh, example and say, imagine that um, you, know, you find that uh, black Americans, if you're looking at the best cancer treatment or some new cancer treatment that's the most effective treatment, and you find that black Americans get that treatment at a rate of, you know, among all those who get that treatment, 13% are black Americans. Well, that, that looks great unless you find out that actually um, among all cancer patients, black rep blacks represent 50% of cancer patients. Well, then you would clearly conclude that blacks are being underserved with respect to that cancer treatment because the relevant value is the proportion of cancer patients uh, because you don't get cancer treatment unless you have cancer. And so the same applies then to the fatal police shooting argument. So I take it your argument, you haven't quite stated it, your assumption or your, your inference from the data is that black citizens have more encounters with the police that's disproportionate to our representation of the population. And that is why it's wrong to benchmark on the 13% figure. That's right. So so the the benchmarks that we use are crime rates and when you and, and it is the case that crime rates differ across racial and ethnic groups in the United States when you when you benchmark across those uh, uh, those crime rates then what you find is is you don't find evidence of anti anti-black disparities, right? Now your analysis is actually similar to other analyses that have come out in the past. Uh, Roland Fryer had analysis I think it was in 2016 or 2015. Mm -hmm. uh, that looked at data from New Orleans. 
can you tell us a little bit about what he did, how it compares to what you did and what his conclusions were? Sure. Uh, one thing that he did, or one thing that was a little bit different uh, across our uh, approaches, he used it, uh, New Orleans was one of the cities, but he had a, actually a number of different cities uh, in his data set that he analyzed. Um, and what he also looked at was non-lethal force use as well. So he had a smaller scope in terms of uh, regional uh, uh, data, but a larger scope in terms of the kinds of policing behaviors that he was looking at, both lethal and non-lethal force. Um, he did something similar in a lot of the cases, which was to try to um, use various benchmarks, uh, different neighborhood characteristics, different precinct characteristics, different citizen characteristics, to try to ask, once you control for those, um, do you find evidence of anti-black bias in, in policing? Uh, what we did that's a little bit different, as you introduced this as, is first of all looking at the national level data, so a larger data set in terms of the number of fatal police shootings, but we were only looking at, at lethal use of force, not non-lethal uses for, of force. Um, uh, so that's one difference. The other thing that, that is important about, our, uh, about the two approaches is that for us, we tried to get at some different measures of crime beyond just police department reports of crime to the federal government. Um, because it, it, as I'm sure you know, one really important and common criticism is that policing data are biased to begin with, right? And so if police are simply stopping black citizens more often, arresting black citizens more often than their actual rates of crime, then the, the data that we have are, are in some sense contaminated, right, by that initial police bias. Uh, so what we did was look at some data sets that don't have police bias in them to try to see, do we still find the same effects when we when we do that? So you've kind of... Um sort of foreseen what are my uh, lines of kind of pushback against your argument. I think there's a fairly large body of evidence suggesting that first aspects of the criminal justice system are biased against black Americans. You know, I moved here from New York City, and there's a lot of data uh, about stop and frisk policy that was in force in New York when I was there. In New York, about 54% of the stops were black people whereas black people made up 23% of the population. Once stopped, blacks are more often frisked and subject to violence. They're stopped more often for furtive movements, but less likely to have guns. And I'm giving you data in part from uh, Jennifer Eberhardt's book. She analyzed over 28,000 stops in 2013 and 14 in Oakland, and uh, blacks are more likely to be searched, handcuffed, and arrested. You can go on for traffic stops and other kinds of events. So I guess I'd like to hear what's your attitude towards these kind of figures for other engagements with the police, and how or why do you think shootings are different if you do? Okay, so one thing about the the um, stop data is you're right that there are there are large disparities in stops, uh, large racial disparities in stops. What you often find are, are two important things. One is um, and, and that's true also for non-lethal uses of force. Okay, so there are large disparities in terms of thing, you know, relative disparities uh, in terms of use of baton or use of taser and, and so on. Okay, um, a couple of things happen though when you look at the data in more detail. One is that when you look at the absolute numbers, a lot of these uh, 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 racial disparities are not quite what they seem compared to when you're using relative. Uh, comparisons or odd ratios. Uh, the other thing is that once you adjust for the relevant variables, uh, those um, 
those odds ratios often drop really dramatically. So in Fryer's data, for example, one of the things that Fryer did was analyze stop and frisk data. And there have been other reviews of, of stop data, police stop data. Uh, he finds that when you adjust for all of the various uh, neighborhood characteristics and precinct characteristics and so on, that you, you end up dropping those odds ratios down to 1.2 or 1.1 even sometimes in terms of blacks being more likely to be stopped relative to whites. So uh, what, what will often happen is once you control for the, for the actual variables, again, that we argue are really important for these things, the, the odds are much less dramatic than, than what they appear. But are, uh, is there still bias? There is, yeah. So, so um, in non, so we actually in some of our other data find the same thing that that Fryer finds, which is it's in lethal force data where there is where we don't get anti-black bias. Okay, in non-lethal data, so we have some data from the city of Cincinnati, for instance. You still do find um, anti-black bias, but those, but those, uh, the, the actual bias is really quite small once you control for the relevant variables. So, in the uh, one interesting thing is. In the Center for Policing Equity, uh, which is not in any way a pro-policing uh, organization, uh, they, they have uh, data on use of non-lethal force like taser use and so on. And you can find that uh, there's about, um, you know, uh, odds ratio of about 1.5 times more likely for black citizens to be tased during an arrest relative to white citizens. Okay, If you actually look at the numbers, that works out to about six black citizens out of a thousand arrests who, who get tasered versus about four black citizens out of a thousand arrests. So those are really strikingly different um, uh, numbers from using odds ratios or using relative number, using prop, uh, percentages, you know, 60% more, 40% more sounds much more dramatic than the actual numbers do. So it, it's not the case that police are totally unbiased in any way. And even Friar's work showed that, that a purely um, non-biased uh, decision maker couldn't produce the data that, that he had. It's just that those, those levels of bias are often really misunderstood, even in the non-lethal force uh, uh, level. So I want to happen to a role of audience ombudsman for a minute. Can you explain what you mean by odds ratio? Sure. So basically what you're asking in the odds ratio is you're trying to compare the, um, the uh, I mean, stated simply the likelihood that some event is going to happen for one group relative to another group. So in, in you, you can code these however you want, but in most of the calculations, if you have an odds ratio above one, that would mean that black citizens are more likely to have the outcome, let's say, than white citizens. So an odds ratio, when we say there's an odds ratio of 2.5 for blacks to be shot, fatally shot by the police relative to whites, what we're saying there is that um, given the population proportions of black and white citizens in the United States, that outcome is more is two and a half times as likely for black citizens relative to, to white citizens. Okay, and that that calculation always depends on what the benchmark is, okay, which is the point that we try so, to make. Joe, could I just make sure I understand what you're saying? So, in Fryer's work, for example, if you use non-racial categories, like uh, for example, characteristics of the neighborhood or some other. Uh, exogenous variables, which are not race, uh, and you try to control for those effects, then what's left over, which is interpreted perhaps as a racial bias, um, is 
there and perhaps significant, but it's not as large as what people think. Is that is that a fair characterization? That's a fair characterization. I, I would say in terms of the details, it's more uh, one of the things that he's doing is something similar, uh, more similar to let's take a regression and throw all those things in there and see what the coefficient for race is. Yes. So so it's it's reasonable interpretation. Right. Yeah. Now, but getting back to Corey's question about your normalizing, say, rates of uh, police uh, lethal force to uh, other things like, say, uh, the probability that you're stopped given that you're black. Um, couldn't, you know, I think a lot of people might say, well, couldn't there just be an overall level of bias so all of those numbers are inflated kind of roughly equally? And then when you take ratios of them, uh, well, yeah, you find there isn't, the, the rate of lethal force use application is not disproportionate relative to the chances that you're stopped given that you're black, but that one was also uh, <laughs> elevated because yeah. of racial. So so it could be yeah. just there's some uniform level of uh, racial uh, discrimination going on. And so this method of computing uh, the size of it um, sort of just conspires to get rid of it. Yep. Yeah. So uh, there are two, two responses that I would have to push back on that to say that that's not what's going on here. One is that one of the two of the sources of data that we use have no kinds of policing bias in them at all. And this is an advance over what others have done, like like what Friar's analysis did. One of those is the National Crime Victimization Survey, which is a self-report, nationally representative self-report survey of Americans in the U.S. on their crime victimization. So they report whether they were victimized in the last year and whatever kind of characteristics they can recall, such as the race of the person who, who attacked them or who was the, the offending uh, individual. So when you do that, there, there's no policing bias bias in there because that's coming straight from the the victim him or herself and when you do that you get the same effect so we don't find uh, anti-black bias even in those cases if it had to do with a just general inflation of policing data we would see bias there right so just just to make sure i understand yeah. so if you look at witness accounts that's right of who committed the crime against them when they have some sense of the race of right. the person um, there may be an inflation relative to population fraction for certain groups. And then if you use that as the metric in the denominator, mm-hmm. um, then you find no inflation of application of lethal force relative to that representation. That's right. That's right. Yes. And, and the other variable that we use, or the other way of indexing that also then, is we use the CDC death by assault data. Okay, so the CDC death by assault data are also uncontaminated by this kind of policing bias that you talk about. Um, we can estimate, it's a, it's a, um, non-perfect estimate of crime. Oh, the death yeah. by assault. How would you? I mean, explain to you what they mean. Sure. Do, you, do you mean so, they identified the perpetrator already? No. So they, it's the race of the victim. Okay. So someone is killed, and and the CDC has data about how they died. One of the categories is death by assault, and so you can get number of black Americans and number of white Americans in the U.S. And you can break that down by county level even, uh, who have been uh, killed by, who have died by assault in a given year. What we do then is make the inference that because most deaths by assault are within race deaths, it depends on what kind of death you're looking at, but something around 90% are within race, not cross race. That gives us some imperfect but still index of of um, a death of of homicide rates. Uh, so again, you do that, and and we find the same thing. We we still don't see anti-black bias uh, there. Uh, the the other the other thing though also that that's important about this, Steve, with respect to your question, is that if stop data 
are inflated. And the question is, is that then also inflating rates of, of fatal shootings for black citizens because of that? I think that actually reflects one of the problems with this whole uh, field, which is a misunderstanding of the nature of fatal police shootings. Okay, So it isn't the case that most fatal police shootings begin with that kind of stop, Okay, begin with a stop and frisk, begin with a traffic stop uh, or something like that. It, it, I think there's a, a misperception in the public that most police shootings are of that nature. So what it's a very small percentage that are like Do you that. happen to know what percentage of shootings occur by simple stops where someone is unarmed? Um, it's uh, under, certainly under, well, okay, you asked two different questions. There's one is simple stop and one is when they're unarmed. Those aren't the same. That's so, exactly. so, okay, so say, let's do both those yeah, questions yeah, yeah. in sequence. Okay, so uh, let's start with um, uh, uh, the initiation of the stop, whether it was initiated, or the initiation of the police contact, whether it was initiated by, say, a 911 call response, or whether it was a discretionary initiation on the part of the police officer. That's one way to break those down. Um, I, I can try to find the exact numbers. My, my recollection is that it's 85%, certainly above 80% of non-discretionary stops. Okay, so the far bulk of police shootings begin not in discretionary policing, okay, not in the kind of stop and frisk. I mean, someone's called 911. That's right, someone has called 911. Or that they see some kind of criminal activity yes. ongoing. Yes, exactly. If you ask about unarmed, actually, the data are even more striking. It's a really small minority of cases where an individual is, and here we could break it down by different ways also, but where an individual is unarmed and not currently aggressing against the officer in some way. So we have to be a little careful here because you can be unarmed and be a, a deadly threat to an officer. There are lots of cases, for instance, where, I mean, relatively speaking in, in these data sets, where someone is you know kneeling on top of an officer, pounding their head into the ground, and, and the officer fears that they're going to lose consciousness. If we look at the number of cases per year where someone is not currently physically aggressing against an officer and, and is unarmed when they're shot... At most, as a, as a really, really liberal maximum, that's probably something like 50 cases a year. And Yeah, right. I seem to recall someone claiming that sounded about right to me, that your chances of being stopped uh, in a discretionary action by a police officer and then shot while unarmed was less than your chance of being hit by lightning or something. Yeah, yeah that's so, almost certainly the case. Yeah, yeah. Uh, because if you add that on also where they're stopped in a discretionary Yeah, I mean, the nightmare fashion, scenario, I think the, the emotional reaction people have from these few these relatively rare news stories but which everybody becomes aware of is the idea that i was minding my own business maybe i was speeding or something mm -hmm. i get pulled over and then f through no fault of my own i end up shot by a police officer but i think that's like similar to being hit by lightning or something right and, and one thing i will say not to play my own devil's advocate against my own work but w one thing that's important is that even though those are rare events i think they have a really serious um, oversized impact on police community I mean, quite relations. Rightly. I mean, no, yeah, quite rightly. So, so no question at all in terms of the importance of those events for those, you know, subsequent effects. But, but you're right that the likelihood of them is extremely low. So I, I actually recently, I was interested in this. I calculated what the error rate of police officers might be. So what, what would be an interesting estimate of the error rate? And it turns out uh, at a, I said, let's be as critical as possible toward the police in trying to, to, to make them look as bad as possible in what their error rate is. So as an absolute minimum, there is a minimum of about 50 million police citizen encounters a year. Okay. And, and that's actually just for an individual person. It's, it's actually 50 million person 
um, police encounters. So it's probably three or four times that in, in reality. But let's say a minimum of 50 million police counters, encounters a year. There's a maximum of, let's say, 50 errors that police make. And by that, we would say the person is unarmed. They're not doing anything. They're not aggressing against the officer, and they end up being fatally shot. So, so I think cases where we would clearly say the officer has made an error. Okay? So, so that translates to a, about a 0.0001% error rate. Yeah, it's like okay. one in a million, it sounds yeah, like. It's an incredibly yeah. small error rate to, for, for what is an exceptionally dangerous and difficult decision that officers have to make. It's probably actually you know, half or even, even less than that error rate if, if we are being more generous to the police. So, I mean, totally negligible compared to the chance that you're just killed by another driver who's drunk or you, you screw up yourself and yeah. get killed, right? So. so let me raise three more potential arguments against your... These questions you can raise about your analyses. Yeah. If you go through your data, you actually get a fairly wide range of odds ratios for yes. relative likelihood that someone's going to be killed by the police. I think in your NRBRS data, you have uh, whites being four times as likely as blacks. Um, but in other data, blacks are slightly more likely. I mean, a factor of four is not nothing. So why do you think the data varies so much in particular likelihood that someone of a particular race will be shot rolled to another, someone of another race. Yeah, so, so there are actually two sources of variation in those odds ratios. One um, is if you look at it within a certain kind of shooting, so, so let's just take all shootings, okay, so every fatal shooting that happens in the U.S., all right, you're right that when you benchmark across different kinds of crime rates, those odds ratios are going to are gonna change around a little bit. Um, it, it's not obvious, I, I mean, I know the the statistical reason for why that happens, but it's not obvious to me why those move around so much. Uh, it basically just is a difference in terms of what the relative rates of crime from those different data sets might be. Um, but it points to potential error in those data sets, right? At least sampling error. Um, it could be, but if you look, it, yes, but it's not clear that that actually changes the conclusion. So when you look at all fatal shootings, uh, which across a two-year period for black and white citizens is about 1,500 shootings, in no case is there significant anti-black disparities in fatal police shootings. Okay, So, so the, the difference is just how much anti-white disparity is there. Is there evidence of some or is there evidence of, of uh, equality in the outcome? But, but the other source of variation, then, is what happens when you move from different kinds of shootings to one another, or from one kind of shooting to another. So once you move out of the all-fatal shootings and you ask about things like the likelihood of being shot while you're unarmed, the likelihood of having an object in your, that you take out of your pocket being mistaken for uh, you know, a gun when it's a harmless object like a weapon or a phone— what happens there is that the data just become really uncertain. The estimates are, are very, very uncertain. And so there, the, those estimates may range from really strong anti-black disparity to very strong anti-white disparity. We just don't know. And, and so that is one source of, of serious uncertainty in the data. Once you start to drill down to those smaller kinds of shootings, there's just so few of them that it's not clear what the actual answer is. Hopefully later on in our discussion, we'll have a chance to talk about Jennifer Eberhardt's study uh, where she looked at uh, the ability of subjects to identify an object as dangerous or not dangerous based on how clear it was. And she found disparities uh, with people more likely to identify the object as dangerous in hands of a black person. So it occurs to me that um, just these kinds of simple calculations where you, you look up one rate, uh, perhaps distinguished by race and another rate, and you take the ratio. These are kind of the obvious things, like uh, I guess if you're quantitatively oriented and you start hearing stories about police shootings, you you might do a few Google searches and 
try to calculate a few of these things. Seems totally innocuous to me. Uh, maybe the inferences that you make based on those things, one should be very, very careful about. However, I get the feeling that in certain quarters, if you just show those numbers and compute those ratios and maybe even say something a little bit tentative about the conclusion, you're going to get crushed. You're going to get a very emotional, angry response for daring to perhaps say something which is counter to the mainstream narrative on this. And is that your experience? Have you been threatened since this paper came out, Joe? <laughs> That's the... <laughs> uh, the response has been really unusual um, in the sense that uh, the, the, the work itself has been picked up by a lot of what you, what you might say are more conservative, politically conservative uh, quarters and commentators and so on. And so they're the, the response is, is, is that because only they can understand the math or is it because <laughs> is it because the other side understands the math, but they don't want to talk about what you want to talk about? I, the latter, I think. I, I, I assume it's the latter. Okay. Um, uh, and, and so, uh, you know, a lot of those responses have actually been very positive toward the work and, and people have shared it and, and liked it quite a lot. So what about in a departmental colloquium? Well, our department is is maybe somewhat unique in being a, a, a relatively objective group of individuals who have who have found the data to be convincing and have thought it to be very interesting. Which isn't to say that they haven't asked hard questions about the data, but just that they've accepted the the conclusions based on on what the data are. It's not going to be true for all uh, quarters, certainly. But so, at least in your experience, science works here in the academy. Science works in some parts <laughs> of the academy. <laughs> Okay. Yeah. Maybe Corey's going to get to this later. I don't want to derail <laughs> the conversation. Just a couple more points I want to get at. Um, your data is at the national level. So you honestly can't, you probably can't make inferences, or can you, I say, I don't want to put words in your mouth. Can you make inferences about potential bias by uh, local police units? Sure. Yeah. So I mean, you're from Chicago. Yep. That's a fairly corrupt place. Right. <laughs> so I want to hear about it. <laughs> Well, uh, th that is important is that there, there is variation. There's, there's actually quite a lot of variation from, from county to county or from department to department. So, uh, so that, that is an important thing. One thing that we're looking at, it's just the national level in this work. That said, we do have other research where we look at county-to-county county variation and, and look at county-to-county county data and ask whether there's evidence then of meaningful anti-black bias once we drill down to the county level. Uh, and, and what we find there, actually this was part of a bigger project that uh, one of my collaborators, uh, David Johnson, spearheaded, which was to, what we were actually interested in was officer race. So one thing that's not well known is, is anything about the officers themselves. So we spent two years contacting all 700-some police departments that had a fatal shooting in 2015, asking them for data about all the officers who were involved in those shootings. And we asked about officer race, officer sex, and officer years of experience. Uh, and we ended up getting, uh, through an iterative process of, of more and more involved requests and, and then a team of undergraduates who were very good at internet sleuthing, we, we ended up getting about 85% of the data, of all police officer data from all shootings in 2015. Um, and so we could ask questions about the, the likelihood that the race of the officer predicted the race of the citizen shot. Uh, but one of the things we were able to do there, um, because we had county-level information about where the shooting had taken place, we could look at county-level crime rates also. And there we found really quite remarkable specificity of, of county-level crime. So it turns out that the uh, uh, county-level white crime rate, uh, and this is in terms of violent crimes, uh, predicts the likelihood that a white citizen will be shot in that county, but not the likelihood that a black or Hispanic citizen will be shot. 
the county level black crime rate predicts the likelihood that a black citizen will be shot, but not a white or Hispanic citizen. And then the county level Hispanic crime rate predicts the likelihood, obviously, that a Hispanic citizen will be shot and not black or white. So, so we actually find really race specific influences of crime on the likelihood that some citizen will be shot. Um, again, which is not to say that there aren't there, there's not variation from place to place or department to department, but even when you go down to that local level, it does seem to still hold that that crime rates are are a key variable here. And that's for every county you looked at. There were no counties that exhibited overrepresentation of blacks among people shot relative to crime rates. No, there's going to be variation there. Yeah, so so it is the case that some counties will show that that kind of um, that that kind of overrepresentation. Yeah, I mean it's not a perfect uh, not a perfect measure, but overall we don't see uh, don't see that that disparity. So the last critical pushback question: Your data is from 2015 to 2016, and this is post Michael Brown. Is it possible that there was an effect of that shooting? on police mindset that led people to be more careful about when they use force rather than, uh, you know, earlier, prior to the shooting? Yeah, it's a great question. It's really hard to know. Uh, first of all, what we know is at least from 2015, there's been virtually no change in police shootings. So, so if there was an initial effect, that effect hasn't moved at all over the last uh, three years. Uh, so the numbers are almost identical across the, the, that period. Prior to that, the, the problem is, and, and the reason why we start with 2015, it was only in 2015 that we had any kind of complete data on fatal police shootings. So bef so at that year was the year that the Washington Post and the Guardian began to collect data on fatal police shootings in the U.S. Before then, all we had was the police department's voluntary reports to the federal government about who they had shot. Okay. It turns out that once once other non-police organizations began collecting data, that the police departments were underreporting by about half of the number of citizens that they shot. So it's really hard to do pre and post 2015 comparisons in fatal police shootings for that reason. What we can say is that the importance of local crime rates had been shown prior to 2015, but there's just no similar comparison where we can really get that kind of nice that kind of nice data. Joe, are you? We just don't know. Are you familiar with something called the Ferguson effect? Yes. Have you studied that? Actually, I have an undergraduate uh, SROP student who we began that project looking at the Ferguson effect. So the Ferguson effect, uh, for the listeners who don't know, is the, it, there's actually three or four different versions of the Ferguson effect. But the broad strokes of it is that following the shooting of Michael Brown in 2014, that police began to pull back and do less discretionary policing. That pullback on the part of police led to an increase in, in crime and in particular violent crime. So that's a general idea that's been proposed. A few people have tried to test that. But the tests have been either of one city looking pre and post 2014 or at a couple of cities, but only looking at 2015 data. What we wanted, what we try to do is to get for the 50 largest police departments in the U.S. over time data from 2010 to 2018, okay, in terms of both crime rates and some discretionary policing measures. Okay. It turns out that's really hard to do for, <laughs> for a lot of reasons. So we've got about half of those cities. We have about 25 cities now that we, that we have data for. But there are a few problems. One is that different agencies report data in different ways. They break down the different the data in different ways. They categorize data in different ways. So you're trying to find out, okay, well, wh where can I get similar crime rate data across all of these years for these top cities? 
But the other thing is is actually in trying to find discretionary policing data. And so we've been we've been using so far the Policing Data Initiative and the Stanford Policing Project, both of which collect discretionary policing data in terms of things like traffic stops uh, by the police and so on. And so as I said, we've got about half the data right now. What we what it looks like so far is that um, there is variation in whether um, discretionary policing has changed pre and post 2014. Among the cities where there has been a decrease in discretionary policing, about 80% of those also saw increases in crime. Okay, so, um, so there does seem to be at least some tentative evidence uh, that the Ferguson effect may be something real. But again, we're, we're only about halfway through trying to, you know, being able to get is, all those data. Is Baltimore in your data set? Uh, Baltimore is in, in our data set, yes. Because I, I think at least what I've read is that there was a particularly strong effect in Baltimore, and it wasn't yes. it wasn't actually uh, Ferguson. It was actually some incidents that actually happened in in Baltimore. That's yes, Freddie Gray. Yeah. That's Freddie yeah. Gray. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so I want to put forward an analogy to you, and I'd like to hear your reaction to it. Police shootings are a little bit like the death penalty, kind of an instantaneous way. At least fatal police shootings. You're arguing that there's no disparity in uh, racial disparity in police shootings, presumably because police approach this somewhat differently than they approach uh, other uses of force. Have you ever heard the term death is different in death penalty jurisprudence? No. It's, it refers to the idea that there's far more extensive procedural protections for defendants in death penalty cases. You have multiple layers of appeal. You've got bifurcated hearings. A lot of these came in, you know, after uh, the Supreme Court had a moratorium on the death penalty in the uh, early to mid seventies. There's the the general principle behind it is that because the penalty is so severe, you got to take extraordinary measures, and these measures uh, hopefully will reduce both unfairness and, although this is not written in because it's a substantive consequence, not procedural, potential errors. But we know, in fact, there's there's pretty clear uh, evidence of racial bias in the death penalty, especially as regards uh, race of the victim. Mm -hmm. uh, if you kill someone white, you're much more likely to get the death penalty than if you kill somebody black. But also there's some evidence of race of the um, defendant also having an effect. So I'm sort of interested in the idea that although they take these extensive efforts to reduce bias through really, really rigorous review in the death penalty cases, they haven't managed to do it. <laughs> Um, but your suggestion is that in police shootings, somehow police in the instantaneous decision to shoot have managed to eliminate bias. What are your thoughts on that? Sure. Uh, let's be a little cautious. I'll be a little cautious and say it's not clear that they have eliminated bias completely. It's certainly going to be the case that there are some officers, some parts of the, some, at some points in times that are exhibiting bias. Okay. The question is, is there widespread systematic bias in that decision? Okay. And, and, and I think one answer for why there doesn't appear to be that kind of widespread systematic bias is because lethal force, the use of lethal force is really something that is just qualitatively different than other kinds of use of force. And so people talk about the use of force continuum where you might yell at a citizen, you might put your hands on them, you might use a baton, you might use a taser and so on. And then the end of that continuum is the use of, of your, your service revolver. But it's not quite correct because although obviously fatally shooting, fatally shooting someone is more severe than using a taser, the use of the of fatal force 
serves a different purpose. Okay, so so there's a simply a different purpose that fatal force is supposed to meet, and, and therefore a different threshold for using it than any other kind of non-lethal force. So all the other kinds of non-lethal force are about compliance. Okay, they're they're to in, in, uh, you know compel the citizen to comply with the officer's request. Right or wrong, whether they should be doing that is is a separate issue. But that's the stated goal of those of those measures. So you're using you're putting your hands on the, the citizen, for instance, when they're not complying with what you as the officer think is the request that they should be complying with. Okay? That's not why the gun comes out. The gun comes out for a very different purpose, which is to stop an imminent threat okay, to one's own life or the life of another citizen. So there's just simply a different kind of decision rule, actually, that happens at that stage versus other stages of, of use of force. And so what, whatever the kinds of bias might creep in on the non-lethal force end, so in, for instance, you might interpret, and there's evidence showing this, that you might interpret uh, non-compliance on the part of a black citizen versus a white citizen as disrespect for the self or disrespect for authority that might compel you to move through that use of force continuum faster. Th those just aren't the variables that are playing a role when you're making the decision to use deadly force. So th really strong factors like does the person have a gun? Are they firing the gun at someone? Are, are the components or the factors that impact that decision? So those things may just overwhelm whatever other kinds of bias might be present in that decision. So, so it doesn't even have to be the case, actually, that officers have somehow eliminated bias in their thinking. It just has to be that there are other more significant factors that overwhelm whatever amounts of bias there might have been creeping into that decision. What would you say to uh, someone like Colin Kaepernick or to someone who's protesting bias in the police use of force? If you were to tell them where they should be spending their energy to try to reduce fatal shootings of black men, what would your proposal be? Well, I, I mean, if you take a strictly data-driven approach, the, the number one way to reduce fatal shootings of anybody, black or white citizens uh, or Hispanic citizens, three major categories of, of individuals who get shot, number one thing is reduction in crime. Okay, so so not being involved in criminal activity is the, is far and away the best way to not be shot by the police. Um, again, it doesn't mean that officers are perfect, that they're making perfect decisions 100 percent of the time. But that is the major factor that would reduce the pl fatal police shootings. It seems like there are very few things that would reduce it more than that in terms of sheer number of people shot, given the nature of fatal police shootings. So, so that would be number one in all the difficult problems of, of doing that. Uh, number two would be um, something like de investment in de-escalation training is probably something that would then um, also reduce fatal police shootings. Not nearly as much as, as that first thing, but, but maybe to some degree also there might be some cases where some scenario unfolds, again, even if a person is showing having an imminent threat to others, where other techniques might might reduce it. But but again, number one, far and away, would, would simply be crime, a, a crime activity. So you conduct not just what I like to call say, epidemiological research, where you data mine and look at ratios of police shooting relative to other factors that affect policing, but you also carry out experimental work, where you bring police officers into your laboratory Actually, I think your laboratory is a traveling laboratory. That's right, yeah. Okay. We, usually we bring it to them because it's it's hard for them to travel to us and easier for us to travel to, to them. So your goal in these experiments is to begin to actually experimentally manipulate the factors that might affect police shooting, both to determine whether there's racial bias 
and to probe different types of uh, biases uh, that might uh, creep in. In, this, in discussion to these kinds of studies, people often use the term implicit bias. And I'd like if you could start off by telling us what implicit bias is. Yeah, uh, that depends on who you ask. So uh, usually there are th- any at any point in time three or four different definitions of implicit bias floating around. Um, I, I would say something that captures the, the essence of it is that implicit bias is supposed to be a kind of bias that people have that is either uncontrollable or in some way that they're unconscious of or unaware of. Okay. Um, so those and those are two really different features of uh, in terms of consciousness versus controllability of cognitive processes. But but those tend to be the two things that people bring up when they talk about implicit bias. And so uh, one function of the implicit bias argument is to say, uh, look, if you if you look at over the decades, explicit prejudice um, has by almost every measure possible gone down. Okay, egalitarian attitudes have gone up, at least in the United States. Explicit prejudice goes down, but we still see that some groups uh, get equal, unequal outcomes, uh, in, whether it's in criminal justice or, or health or whatever. Implicit bias has entered in a lot of ways as an explanation then for those disparities. So people have said it's not that the police are explicitly biased or that they have explicit levels of prejudice. In other words, if you ask them, do you like black citizens and white citizens, they'll they'll report that in fact they like them to the same degree. That would be explicit prejudice. But instead, there's this kind of implicit bias that they have that they just can't control even if they wanted to. Okay, And and again, another version of that is that they might be unaware simply that that they have that. That bias, and so for whatever reason, the kinds of associations that they might have, let's say, I mean, a standard argument would be uh, officers, just like everybody else, have some associations between, let's say, black men and weapons, or black men and violence, and so again, in an uncontrollable way, those associations are going to impact the decisions that they make. Let's say they might be more likely to think that that wallet in the hands of a black citizen is a gun because of those um, implicit associations. Is the issue that it's uncontrollable or that it's subconscious, that they, they're not knowingly doing it? It's Those are two different things. And again, depending on who you ask, they're going to emphasize one, of, one or the other. So, And that even depends on... Uh, you know, for example, the implicit association test, which is probably the most widely used implicit test, it may be the most widely used personality or I mean, psychology test in existence at this point. Stop and explain yeah. what this test is and the fact that anyone can find it on the Harvard website. Sure. So you could go to Project Implicit uh, and take any number of different kinds of implicit association tests that you'd like online. And basically what the test is doing is it asks you to categorize different words when they're paired with different categories. So, so for instance, if you wanted to know a person's implicit associations between, uh, you know, let's say women and math, okay, versus men in math, you might categorize math-related words when those words are paired with the category female or the category male, and it turns out that it's harder for you to categorize words as math when they're paired with female relative to male, okay? So so that's that's something like the implicit association test, uh, Measures like that are used to support the idea that there is implicit bias in people. Because if you ask people, look, can women do math? They're going to say yes to you in an explicit way, but they still show that it's hard that they have these associations between men and math that are latent in their minds. So, Steve, for your question, a task like the implicit association task is a controllability task. 
Okay, the whole, what's actually interesting about that task is it's really hard not to show that bias, even if you're trying. So even if you are really consciously trying to control your response and categorize the math word as a math word when it's paired with female, but you just can't do it. So that's a controllability element, but there's nothing unconscious about that. You have this really incredible subjective experience of the difficulty of categorizing it. So, so in that kind of case, it's all about controllability and not about conscious or unconscious. So it just depends on who you're asking in terms of which, what, what is the key element there. One of the striking aspects of the data revealed in the lawsuit against Harvard over Asian American admissions was that um, the personality rating given yeah. to the Asian American applicants by the Harvard uh, admissions staff, who had never met them typically, was um, the worst of all groups, mm-hmm. whereas the alumni interviewers who actually met these particular applicants rated them much more highly relative to the other groups. And yeah. so um, one could wonder whether that's a kind of implicit bias, or maybe they uh, just had to meet a certain quota. So that would be the, the key difference in the implicit versus explicit bias argument, which is if it's the case that they have to meet some quota, and so they are knowingly re- giving personality ratings that are lower for Asian applicants, which I think many of the analyses suggest they may actually have been doing that, right? Um, if they're doing that, then that's not going to count as implicit bias. The implicit bias argument is that they, they don't even know that the race of the applicant is causing them to to um, downgrade their personality ratings. That would be a consciousness element where yeah, they're I just mean, unaware of that. Given the very progressive political dispositions of most of these admission staff, I would imagine it's got to be a combination of the two things going on here, actually. Okay. Yeah. Uh, in the policing case, the argument is is about controllability. Yep. Okay. And so it's that even if the officer wants to make a perfect decision about what's in the person's hand, they're not going to be able to control the influence of race uh, on that decision. Right. So let's turn to your experimental design and your simulator. Uh, can you tell us first what is a standard simulator study look like? And then how does your simulator differ from that? Sure. So the standard way that social psychologists would study this uh, decision in the lab is to bring people into the lab. Uh, in fact, they almost never even use actual police officers. They use undergraduate, uh, you know, introductory psychology students uh, for this. But they would bring people into the lab, sit them down at a computer. The computer would have a keyboard in front of them. One of the buttons might be labeled shoot and the other button might be labeled don't shoot. And they're going to see pictures on the computer screen that come up. And those pictures are going to have... Uh, a black or white uh, individual in the picture, and that person's going to be holding a gun or a harmless object like a phone or a coffee mug or something like that. And the task for the participant is just to push a button on the keyboard that says shoot or don't shoot. Okay, That's it. That's how social psychologists, generally speaking, have studied uh, almost, I would say, Upwards of 99% of the data uh, in social psychology come from those kinds of tasks, okay? And you might go through hundreds of those trials with a picture just popping up every couple seconds and you trying to make that decision on the keyboard as quickly as possible, okay? What we do instead in in the immersive simulator that we uh, built was to, uh, we have a, a... 12 foot by 8 foot projection screen and videos are projected onto that screen 
officers are to interact with subjects in those videos, with the citizens in those videos, as they might normally in any kind of policing scenario. Okay? And the scenarios vary, as I'll get to, one important thing is the variation in kinds of scenarios that we have. They might be called for a domestic dispute. They might pull over someone for swerving. Um, you know, there might be a report of a suspicious person breaking into a building. Any of those kinds of scenarios, the officer is going to, as best they can, interact with the target in the video or with the citizen in the video. I keep... In psychology, we call them targets. I keep getting corrected by the police that citizen is the better word to use and not target. <laughs> so uh, so they are to interact with the citizens in the video as, as best they can. Uh, in their holster, they have a handgun, which is a real handgun. We use a, a Glock 19. Um, it's been modified so that it shoots an infrared laser um, out, of, out of the barrel instead of a bullet. And it's, com- it's hooked up to a compressed air uh, cartridge. So it sounds like a real gun. It recoils like a real gun. It feels as if it's a real gun. And, and in fact, most of the officers we work with are, are impressed because the, it, it actually feels like they're, they're making that decision g- given the, the handgun that they're using. Uh, so they're going to watch these videos. And at some point in the videos, we usually have a kind of threat moment where the citizens' hands, for instance, go out of view. Okay, they might put their hands behind their back, or in a pullover scene, a traffic pullover scene, the citizen might reach back into their car after getting out of their car. Okay, so we have these threat moments where then the officer has to make some decision because the person's hands usually will come out either with a gun or with some other harmless object or with nothing at all, for instance. And they're going to use the handgun in their holster to make that decision to shoot by drawing it and then and then firing. And why do you think it's so important to have all these realistic features to your your setup? Yeah, compared to the other. Yeah, so version. so the the reason why, and actually our, our main motivation for this was because the the features that officers report mattering, in the actual decision to use deadly force are totally absent from the standard kind of, you know, computer screen button box or, you know, uh, keyboard button task. Okay, so the, the officers will report that the reason why they're at the scene, the, the dispatch information, for instance, plays a critical role in how they approach that scene. Okay, do they know the person? Have they had interactions with the person? What are the person's hands doing? What's the neighborhood like that they're in? All, all of those things are things that officers will say matter in making the decision to shoot. All of those are stripped away from the standard experimental task. And so our argument has been that race bias, which is very robust in in at least untrained individuals, uh, in that standard computer task is really quite meaningless because you've taken out all of the really forceful elements of that decision to shoot. And so we wanted to put those back in, uh, in part to ask whether race bias was still there, but also to get some estimate of, of how much do they really impact officers' decisions. Let's say pulling over someone for speeding versus serving out a warrant for armed robbery. You know, do officers behave differently under those two conditions? So before we get to your findings, I want to explore a little bit about how police officers feel about working in this situation, because I think that probably accounts for the willingness to participate, and it may in fact account for the kind of officers that will participate in your studies, uh, just to put, put another potential uh, a confounder. So what do they say? I mean, first of all, how do officers feel about the experiments? Are they generally positive about taking part? And do some of them say no? Yeah, so um, I, I will say our our uh, experience has been really quite positive 
with the officers that we've worked with, once they have some, in my, my impression anyway, is once they have some belief that you aren't out to make them look bad, okay? Not that you're out to make them look good, but just that you're a trustworthy, honest person in that collaboration. And, and once you get over that and, and, you, and you have that kind of trust, then we found that, that actually officers are very, um, are very positive, they're very willing to, to, to um, participate in our research, and, and they actually have positive things to say about the simulator experience. Now, granted, uh, that's not all officers, right? Some officers just won't do it one way or the other. They refuse to do it. Some officers go through it and they will report to us afterwards, you know, I really hate these kinds of simulators because I can't do what I would normally do in the real world. So that's absolutely a limitation. And, and officers will bring that up. Uh, in particular, there are times, for instance, where an officer would use non-lethal physical force and they can't do that in the simulator. Uh, so it's not a perfect measure by, by any means, but we do get more positive responses from officers certainly than negative ones. Um, some of them just like the practice of going through the simulator and being able to do that kind of practice because departments vary in terms of whether they have these this kind of professional equipment where officers can can do this practice um, others sincerely believe that they make good decisions and they're actually happy to have an opportunity to demonstrate that they are making good decisions so so we, we've in fact found it's been pretty positive actually in terms of our interactions with the police have you found any systematic differences between the officers who Agree to be part of your studies, and the ones that say no. Well, the problem is we don't ever get the ones that say no. <laughs> so it's but by it's race or, or something else. Um, no, uh, by race, by years of experience, by sex, the samples that we get are fairly well matched to this overall sample um, in the departments that that we've worked with. So that that hasn't been a problem. But yeah, there, there's always the the lingering concern that you know, there's really some officers making terrible decisions and we just didn't get them um, uh, in there. That that said, we try to have the the actual policing staff, like the staff sergeants, for instance, encourage officers to participate in, in a uniform way as much as possible to try to reduce officers' own, you know, lack of, of willingness to be, to be part of it. So what'd you find? So in, in that, what we found so far, and we've collected data with almost 700 police officers now running them through our, our simulator, uh, we find two main things. One is that we don't find any evidence of racial bias in the decision to shoot. Uh, so again, we can measure, uh, and we can measure it with almost millisecond accuracy, how quickly they fire, how many times they fire, and so on. Uh, we don't find racial bias in, in that decision. Okay. Uh, so officers uh, appear to treat unarmed black and unarmed white citizens in the videos in the same way and are not more likely to shoot unarmed black citizens. Uh, what we find instead is that most of the variation in whether officers shoot, including things like do they put their hand on their gun, do they draw their gun, all of these kinds of uh, uh, outcomes, is actually uh, two things. One is some scenarios make officers shoot more than others, and it makes them more likely to shoot. So scenarios with high threat levels, like serving out an armed, a warrant for armed robbery, make officers more likely to shoot than serving a warrant for failure to pay child support, okay? Officers put their guns, their hands on their guns sooner when they're serving out the armed robbery warrant versus the child support warrant, okay? Um, so, so scenario to scenario matters a lot. And then the individual actors, irrespective of their race, matters a lot. So some 
um, actors in the videos behave in more threatening ways than other um, actors in the videos do in terms of where their hands are, do they run from the police, how are they moving their arms, all of those things also impact officers' decisions to shoot. And so those are the two big things uh, which influence the officers. And actually what's interesting is that matches officers' reports about what matters to them in making that, that real decision. So I'd like to ask a couple of questions about your, your experience working with the police and what they've told you uh, about their jobs. Um, so you've got partnerships now with a couple of different police departments, and mm-hmm. that's actually pretty impressive given a lot of the skepticism that you know, police uh, often have towards academics. Yes. So I'm curious yeah. about how you, how you basically bridge that gap, how you made them feel comfortable enough with you to work openly and to make their officers available. Um, yeah, that's a that's a good question. I, I should say it hasn't always worked out. So uh, we have had times where we've tried to work with different departments, and, and what has happened in at, le- at least one occasion is that lawyers for the department uh, came in and stopped the research before we could really get it off the ground. So even there, it was less the actual officers and more people concerned with the liabilities of the departments um, that 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 stopped that. They're afraid you might find out something that was damaging to the That's right, and that then they would be held responsible. Yeah, I'm I'm surprised the lawyers let you in there, because imagine that a future or ongoing lawsuit against a department could call your evidence, your results in as evidence of bias. That would be extremely damaging to the Well, that's, we were able to talk with the, the leadership prior to the lawyers getting involved. And then before we were able to do any studies and, and collect any data, that's exactly when the lawyers came in. And, and that was their logic for why they were not able to do, to, why they wouldn't let us work with them. Even if we promised that everything would be anonymous, all the data would be anonymous, that still wasn't enough for them. So, but if, you, if your data, if your results had come out negatively in terms of racial bias, um, you know, even if they didn't know whether the specific officer that's right. that was yeah. involved yep. in the lawsuit was yeah. involved. There's a general climate at this precinct where, yeah. you know, yeah, that exactly, that's incredibly exactly right. damaging. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. So uh, so uh, in the cases where it has worked, I, I think part of it involves just being open and listening to officers. And so we listen to the officers talk. We pr- present ourselves in a, in a sincere way that we want to learn from the officers. We want them to tell us how they make these decisions they're the experts, they're trained, they get thousands of hours of training to make this decision. And instead of us coming in and saying, look, we know you're biased and we, we've got all these laboratory d- data that, that say that you're biased. And so we're going to test whether you're biased or not. We actually approach it by saying, we're interested in understanding the decision, okay, and understanding how it is that you make this decision. And overall, you do a great job of making this decision. Help us understand that and help us learn why you do how, what you do or how you do what you do. Um, and, and that seems to diffuse the situation a little bit and, and get us on their side. And then it's just a long process of talking with the leadership, talking with individual officers. And, and, and you know, it doesn't happen overnight, uh, certainly. It's just something that, that goes on. And, and then, you know, we didn't collect, we probably could have collected about a third more of data than we actually did if we just stopped talking to the officers. So what would often happen is they would go through the simulator and we only had 20 minutes with each officer, okay? They'd go through the simulator, which was about 19 and a half minutes, and then they'd start talking and they'd open up and they'd talk about different decisions that they were in, maybe that were really similar to the ones in the scenarios. And in, in, I, in particular, never stopped them from talking. And so sometimes we would talk for an hour and they would just, you know, then get the sense of, of feeling 
um, you know, feeling trusting of you and, and being able to open up. So I think the, the students who were with me collecting the data were angry with me usually because I was collecting at a lower rate than all the other people were. You know, we had three different simulators going at once. I would just never stop the officers. I always wanted to hear what they had to say. And, and I think that helps then they talk to other officers and, and people get the sense then, oh yeah, there are these researchers at MSU and, and you know, they're, they're good people. You should, you should participate in this and, and you should do this. And it's also great because you get incredible stories and you get some real insight into what the officers are going through. I would just like to hear a little bit about what these officers told you, because my impression was they opened up to you pretty, uh, in, in a pretty honest and direct way about particular experiences and also the general feeling of being a police officer in the U.S. in a major city today. Yeah. Um, so the, the general feeling of being a police officer, we found varies depending on the, the department. In some department, but, but it ends up being fairly consistent within that department. So in some departments we've worked with, officers have really pessimistic views of, of the direction of the city, for example, and they, have, uh, they, they uh, clearly have um, uh, you know, a lot of problems with being a police officer in terms of what they view the public's uh, view of policing might be. In other departments, officers have really positive views of policing and positive views of the cities that they're in. So there seems to be important city-to-city city or department-to-department variation. Um, in the cities where officers were more negative about policing or about um, police-community relations, a lot of what came out was just the the problems or the, the um, uh, problems of not being understood, okay, and not understanding, and citizens not understanding what policing was all about, and, and understanding the, the difficult decisions that they have to make and the kinds of stressors that they're under. Um, so that, that came out as a consistent theme. When officers would open up about the, the hardships of policing and the difficulty of policing, what often came out was people just don't understand what it's like to be a police officer. We're expected to do everything, and we're expected to do everything in an exactly perfect manner, okay? And again, and just to be clear, it's not to excuse when officers make mistakes or when officers aren't willing to change if they are, you know, making systematic biases. But there, in a lot of officers, there seemed to be this concern that, um, it, which really affected them psychologically, that we're asked, you know, one officer said, you know, we're, at, we're asked to be um, uh, enforcing the law. We're asked to know the law, of course, but then we're asked to enforce the law. We're also asked to be um, school supervisors and help students out. We're asked to be parents for kids. We're asked to be everything. We're asked to be elderly caregivers. We're just asked to provide every service imaginable, and they keep loading more and more things onto our job that we're supposed to do. And by the way, we have to do them all perfectly, right? If if we do something wrong or we make a mistake, it's the you know we're concerned that it's going to be the end of our careers, or there's there's this public this perception that the public is against us when we make an error. And and they understood that. It wasn't all people in a city or all of the public, but just that there were very vocal components within the public that would make their lives miserable if they couldn't do everything exactly perfectly like they were being asked to do. Uh, so that was a, a consistent theme in terms of the, the experiences that some officers at some of the cities we've worked with, with have had. Now, I understand that while your th results are sort of, I wouldn't say anomalous, or very, they're fairly different from the mainstream in social psychology, you think they're actually not very different from results the criminologists have arrived at over the past few decades. Could you say a little bit about the difference between your field and criminology? Yeah, I, there are a lot of differences between the two. Uh, one, that's I think you're right about um, that impression of, of in, in criminology, things like 
the the importance of the neighborhood have have been a central variable for decades and decades. People have studied that. Uh, I, I think one of the big differences actually between criminal justice and psychology is the starting point for understanding that decision. So something that criminal justice has done well relative to psychology is to start with the people actually making that decision in the environment that they're making those that, those decisions. So, you know, drive-alongs have been do, being done in criminal justice research for decades. There, those are, you know, in the 80s, there were, case, there were studies of people doing, researchers doing drive-alongs with actual police officers, coding the data as best they could. In psychology, for whatever reason, uh, and I, there are probably a lot of reasons, we've started at a completely different side of trying to understand this decision, which is we know that people are biased, okay, and we're going to do the same laboratory studies that we do to study every decision to show that people are biased. And so it's just a completely different v way of, of studying the question to the point where, like I said, we don't even use police officers in most of the studies that we use in that we have in psychology of police officer decision making, which when you think about it, is just insane. Like there's there's no reason why we would study an expert group, okay, by looking at non-expert decision makers, okay? and and again we do so in these extraordinarily stripped down what what I would call just meaningless decision environments. So so part of the reason why there's been some uh, a difference in terms of the appreciation of some out uh, of some finding is that criminal criminal justice people have just been studying it in a very different way. What what I would say is a much better way than than social psychologists have. So we're about out of time, Joe. Uh, Steve, do you have any more questions for Joe on these two topics? Uh, well, I think it's been extremely enlightening. Um, I, maybe you could say a little bit more about specific reaction to your simulator research results, reaction from other people. Sure. So uh, there have been a, uh, a few different reactions that we've had. Uh, among police officers, obviously, they're, they're, they've been you know, fine with the results. That's what they expected. And, and again, as I said, I think in part they're willing to do this work because they believe that they make good decisions and they see it as an opportunity to show that. Um, among typical academics, I could point out that it's quite difficult to publish these data. <laughs> and we've had some... Uh, some maybe questionable rejections of the work, although it's always hard to know work gets rejected all the time for different reasons. Um, but there's certainly been some some questionable rejections uh, of these of this of these data as we try to publish them. And what what would be a typical reason uh, that the reviewer would give to reject the paper? The common thing we keep getting is we know that officers are biased, and so therefore something is wrong with your simulator. <laughs> <laughs> right, you you couldn't have actually found this. Uh, you know, maybe the 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 simulator isn't the right decision environment to study this in, and it's not a real environment anyway. It's just a simulation, despite the fact that it's you know orders of magnitude closer to the real decision than all of the social psychology work that they would accept as being correct. But this seems to be a persistent theme: is, is we know that officers are biased, so so something's wrong with what you're presenting, which is kind of not how science is supposed to work. Can you tell whether when they say we know that officers are biased, is it based on the experiments done on students in, in on campuses, or is it based on the, for example, statistical data, for example, that was discussed in part one of this uh, podcast? It's been both. Uh, so we've gotten both of those. It's just more surprising when it comes from the experimental data based on, uh, you know, naive undergraduates doing these simplified computer tasks. Um, uh, so that's just really surprising when that happens and, and frustrating. What do you think is the potential for not 
okay, there are sort of two levels of learning from your results. One is among other academic scientists. So imagine that um, your kind of experimentation becomes popular and well-supported, and so huge amounts of data are gathered and presumably maybe uh, verifying your results. Um, what would the impact of that be on uh, the attitudes of, for example, these referees uh, that you're dealing with now, and then eventually the broader public? Uh, yeah, so um, one impact would be what what I would hope if, if we could imagine sort of what the big picture impact would be would actually be and this is what my long-term aim is is to change the field of experimental social psychology very broadly okay so what I would love to see is and this is sort of leading to the third section Corey uh, that, that you that you have uh, listed out there what I would like to see is experimental social psychologists just doing research differently broadly doing research very differently. When we're interested in understanding, you know, women in STEM participation, we don't bring people, undergraduates, into the lab and have them do an IAT, okay? What we do is we study that topic that we're interested in, and we understand the factors that go into success at that topic, and, and then we, we pursue it for, for starting with that point among the people who are actually making those kinds of decisions. So in the end, what I would hope for big picture are, are broad changes just to standard experimental practice where it became unacceptable to make uh, to, to do research on specific populations by, by drawing undergraduates in, in our introductory subject uh, uh, psychology subject pools. I'd like to see that stopped. Okay, but in the in the in the process of getting from here to there, uh, imagine that you're invited to an august psychology department, say at Harvard University, to give a colloquium on part one and part two of what you presented today. How open are people in those departments to learning from your results? If I accept at face value that you are a skilled experimenter and that you honestly have presented your data and it's been analyzed correctly, to me it sounds like strong evidence in many ways, stronger evidence than all these sort of classroom convenience uh, sample studies uh, as to the true nature of decision-making under stress by these police officers. Um, but do you find that reaction among other psychologists and criminologists? That, is that, that reaction has been positive among those people who don't study this topic and among those people who don't who I don't make the the broad implications for. Okay, so so I I've, I've talked about these research at, in different universities and people who don't study fatal police shootings have been open to to the data. Okay, so so it has been positive in that sense. It has not been positive among people who study fatal police shootings. Okay, because it's undermining what what, what their what their research finds. It's also not been positive if we think about if they think about the implications for their own research topics in saying that though that the way they're going about studying is not, is it's, not it's, been, it's been said that it's very hard to get someone to understand something when their salary depends on That's them right. not understanding it. Was it. Upton Sinclair, um, is that right? Yeah. But so when well, I mean, you... It's, it's salary and, and reputation, okay? And yes. in some sense, even yeah. more important, their life's work. So not to go on too long because we already have, but just one last question about if you want the public to know something about police officers that you've learned through your simulator studies... What would it be that you think they don't know right now? 
Uh, I would say an appreciation, actually, for the difficulty of the decision that officers are often placed in. And, and this is true when we do take, we, we have it sometimes taken untrained individuals, regular citizens, community members, also sometimes undergraduates, into the lab and have them do the simulator. And one thing that they very frequently come away with is just a different appreciation for what that decision is like. I don't think people really understand what you have to do to identify within, in fact, in under a second, where an object is, what the object is, make a decision about how to respond to that object. Under those really demanding, highly uncertain conditions, decision-making is really, really difficult. It's really hard to do that well. And so having an appreciation for the difficulty of that problem, and then also for, for actually how good of a job officers do day in and day out at making that decision, I, I think would be something that, that people could come away with. You know, you may have already done this, but it would be great to shoot some video and put it up on YouTube of people going through your simulator, maybe some responses, maybe some interviews with some police officers. I think it would give, as you were just saying, a lot of people insight into how difficult it is to be a police officer and also how uh, hard an average person would find it to be placed in those circumstances. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great idea. Well, thanks, Joe, for now. I think we've uh, more than uh, taken up the amount of time from you that we can reasonably expect, but we hope you'll come back. And um, that's all for me. Yeah, thanks for joining us. I hope we can have you back. Yeah, thanks so much. I really appreciate it.